Do you remember a baseball pitcher by the name of uh, Roger Clemens? Some of you do. Yeah, I would imagine most of you do. Well, I want to tell you about a day that, that changed his life. It was July 15th, 1986, and Roger Clemens um, was the first uh, major league pitcher. This was the first time that he played in an all-star game. Um, he was a powerful right-handed pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, and he'd been named to the all-star team as the American League pitcher. Now, what's different about 1986 is that uh, during 1986, they had the uh, American League where the pitchers didn't bat in the American League, but they did in the National League. So in 1986, um, it was the time during the All-Star Game where the National League, they were following the National League rules, so the American League batters, uh, were, were the pitchers would bat. And it was something entirely different, especially for Roger Clemens. He didn't bat in the American League. So here he is playing in this All-Star game, and now he's being forced to bat against a pitcher who is the best in the National League. So in the second inning, he comes up, and the pitcher for the National League was a guy by the name of Dwight Gooden. The year before, he had won the Cy Young Award for pitcher. So here you are. You have Roger Clemens, who doesn't bat, and now he's forced in an All-Star game, second inning, to come to get, not only is he batting against a pitcher, but one of the best fastball pitchers in the National League. A guy by the name of Dwight Gooden. So Dwight Gooden, he wound up, and he just threw a, a streaking fastball right across the plate. And Roger Clemens, he stepped out of the box, and he kind of blinked his eyes a couple times, and he, he looked at the catcher who was Gary Carter at that time, and he says, Gary, is that what my pitches look like? And, Clement, uh, and, and uh, uh, Carter said, yeah, you bet it is. So we sit back in the box, and he basically struck out. But what happened is he went to the mound, and he pitched an entirely different way. He threw three perfect innings. No one else got a hit. He was voted the game's most valuable player, which is kind of different for a pitcher to be named the most valuable player. And this is what he said. From that day on, he would tell people he had greater confidence in his own pitching. Once he understood how powerful his own fastball was, he pitched with all of the confidence in the world. Isn't that interesting? How could you as individuals, how could we as family, how could we as a church, no one understand the confidence that God would have us to have because we are Christ's followers? Is there something that we could visualize? Is there a place where we can go to know and understand that God, that God not only wants to work in us, but there's an expectation and even a sense of confidence that we can have that God is working in the midst of us. He's not only working in your individual life, but he's working in our families and he wants to work in our church. I believe that when we look at the Bible, we can go and we can have this kind of confidence, not necessarily in ourselves, but we can have confidence in the word of God. What God desires to do is to make us individuals and a church to come to a place where we're learning about the Bible, where there's wonderful, joyful, thankful fellowship with one another, and there's spiritual growth. You know, you can leave here today with a confident expectation that God wants to use your life and that God expects. So we're in a natural transition in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm kind of moving away from the Gospel of Mark this morning. And what I want to do is I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8. And what I want to do is this. This is, this is my heart today. I, I'm, I'm the pastor guy. This is my heart. I want to encourage you. I want to, to offer my thanks to you, to Hope Church, for who you are, what you've done. 
all of you gathered this morning to remind us that God wants and desires. There's this expectation that God wants and desires to use us for his honor and for his glory. And, and that's what I want to do this morning. I want you to leave here going, you know what? I had this expectation as I approach the holiday season. You know, holidays, Christmas is a, is a really difficult time. There's a lot of busyness going around and we're around family members. And sometimes you don't understand all the things going on in our families. And we feel maybe a, a, a less bold or courageous than we should. What I want to do is I just want to look at God's word and find some place, apply a place where you and I can have this confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who loves us and the God who cares about us. The book of Philippians is, is a book, a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written to people in Philippi. And he had been there at one time. He had started a church there. But now it is, it's about 10 or 12 years after his visit. And what he's doing is he's writing a letter to them. And when you read this letter, this wonderful, beautiful letter, there are words of, of confidence. There's words of trust. There's themes of joy and thanksgiving. All of these wonderful Things are just bursting out, They're rejoicing, if you bursting out because he loves and cares for these people. Uh, the word joy is mentioned over six times. The word rejoicing is, is uh, mentioned over six times. And so you have this, this wonderful letter that just exudes confidence in who God is and what he would have for us. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul is reminding the people that, listen, you can have confidence. You can have confidence to give thanks. You can have confidence to rejoice. You can rejoice in the Lord always because of who I am and the expectations that I have for your life. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want us to have a source of confidence in Jesus for what he wants to do in our life. Hear the word of the Lord. Let me read it. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, remember they're, they're probably in a house setting maybe or uh, they're, they're gathered together listening to this letter that Paul wrote to them. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. That's what I want us to have, of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to until the day of Christ. That's what God to do in your life. That's what God desires to do in my life and your family and our church. Verse 7 says, it is right for me to feel this way. He's talking about emotions. He's talking about his love. He's talking about his affection. There's something going on deep inside of his heart. This is 10, 12 years after the fact, and he still feels some kind of emotional connection or bond to them. And that confidence is just exuding from him. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Man, incredibly beautiful words that Paul writing to this church some 10 years after the fact, 12 years after the fact. Father, I, I, I thank you for this morning. Father, it's a, a Sunday morning after Thanksgiving where we have gathered, many of us have gathered together with family and friends. We've been able to celebrate good things. Father, the abundant blessing of food, a wide variety of food. Uh, we've been able to experience family members coming from all over the United States, maybe even the world, to, to gather together to celebrate with us as families. And, and we thank you for that. And Father, our hearts are in somewhat joyful today, rejoicing 
And not only for the opportunity that we have to gather together, but the opportunity for us to gather together as a family, looking at who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and how we can have absolute confidence in your work in our lives. So, Father, I pray that our minds and hearts would be open to the reality of the gospel and who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, I want to take you back to the beginning of this church for just a few minutes. It's actually recorded in Acts chapter 16. It has an, an interesting beginning, if you will. I mean, a very, very unique and different beginning, Acts chapter 16. Paul would typically do on a missionary journey. What he would do is he would typically go into a city, and if there's a synagogue, he'd go to the synagogue, he'd spend three Sabbaths there at the synagogue, and he would tell them, show them about Jesus in the Old Testament. That's what he would do. That's kind of his pattern, if you will. Well, he comes into Philippi. The problem in Philippi, there's no synagogue. Now, what's interesting is this. Philippi is actually a fairly large Roman city. There's a lot of retired Roman soldiers in the city, but there's no synagogue. So what Paul does is he goes outside of the, of the city and he finds a place of prayer there. And as he meets with these ladies, if you will, one of them by the name of Lydia, he begins to talk to them about Christ. And in the text in Acts chapter 16, it says, The Lord opened up Lydia's heart to respond to the Lord, and she was baptized in all of her family. So here you have the first contact, converts, if you will, in the city of Philippi, outside of a synagogue. Second convert is as Paul spent time there, days, weeks, he's ministering. He's walking around and serving people. And, and there was a slave girl, and she would follow after Paul and Silas, and she would say this, these guys are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. And this seemed to go on for a number of days. And here, when you look at the text, it's an evil spirit actually speaking through this girl. So here you have this evil spirit in some backwards kind of way telling people how to get saved. Finally, Paul, he says, oh, listen, I've had enough of this. And he just cast the demon out of the scow. And I believe she became the second convert, if you will, in the city of Philippi. So this gal who made a fortune for her slave masters by telling the future, if you will. She had this demon cast out of her. Now the masters, they're ticked off at Paul and Silas. Their, way of mis their business has now been racked. They've lost their business because of this gal not being able to predict the future. So they're mad at Paul and Silas. They grab Paul and Silas, begin to beat them, and throw them into prison. You'd think the gospel would stop. You think that ministry would end? No. Paul and Silas, what do they do? They're rejoicing, they're singing in prison. All of a sudden, there's this earthquake. The ground begins to rumble. The prison doors open up. And, and the jailer, knowing that Paul and Silas are now going to escape, he makes a decision in his mind. I, what I'm going to do, I know that if these prisoners escape, I'm going to be held responsible. And they're going to kill me. Rome is going to kill me. They're going to kill me. So he's going to take his life. And Paul and Silas say, hey, no, we're not going anywhere. We're right here. We're not escaping. We're going to stay right here. And the jailer can't believe it. And he comes to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do? And Paul says, believe Jesus Christ and you will. And that jailer and his family were baptized. So what you have in the, in the city of Philippi, you have Lydia who has a little bit of money, probably a house. You have this slave girl who has no money. She's just lost her job. And now you have this hated jailer, if you will. And they are all part of the founding members of the church in Philippi. What an amazing work that God does in such an odd and diverse way. But you can look at this when you go back and look at Acts chapter 6 and see the handiwork of God all in between the lines. God was doing something wonderful and something supernatural there. And as Paul begins this letter, he's absolutely confident in Look at verse 6 again. 
He says, it's being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was confident. He was absolutely persuaded in his heart and in his mind that God was going to continue to use the people at Philippi for his honor and for his glory. I mean, I picture Paul sitting down in that, that prison in Rome and he's, he's thinking back to the day when these people acknowledge Jesus. He's thinking back to these people and he's thinking back to maybe Lydia and Epaphroditus and, 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 and uh, these other, Syntyche and, and these other people who are a part of the church. And as he looks back, he's thinking of them and he's thinking, oh man, yes, they're imperfect people, but they're, they're the people that God is going to use to honor and glorify himself. He's thinking back with joy. He's thinking back, thanking God for the people of his church, which, which kind of challenges us. What do you think about the people in your church? What do you think about the people that are close to you, the ministries? Do you have this affection? Do you, do you believe that God is bigger and mightier and more powerful, that he has the capacity to work in and through them in ways that you cannot think or imagine? Or have you just closed your hearts up? I think Paul would say, listen, I have the utmost confidence in all of you people that God is going to continue to honor and glorify himself until the day of Christ Jesus, which is the day that he would come back and return. Listen, Paul's confident. He's persuaded in these. And so what I want to do is, I want to, what is the source of his confidence? Why is Paul so persuaded? Why is he confident? And there's three things I want to do, draw out. Number one is this. They were a praying people. He found confidence knowing that they were a praying people. Second thing, he found confidence knowing that, that he was not alone, that they were actually, even though he hadn't been there 10, 12 years, there was a partnership going on there. They were working together in life, in ministry, and suffering. And the last thing is that they understood Paul's heart, that he was passionate for them, and he wanted to see them change. So that's where we're going, for those of you who like to take notes and like an outline. We're going to look at the praying community, partnering community, and passionate. Let's begin the praying in verse 3 through 4. Paul says, I, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I, I always pray with joy. By the way, do you see that the, the note of gratitude? I always pray with joy. I thank my God. Did, did you see the connection between this, this note of joy, this note of gratitude and, and joy? Gratitude and joy. You, you see how they kind of go together? That when we offer thanks, when we offer gratitude, when we look around our world and see what God is doing, that, and, and, and offer the Lord thanks, there's a, this attitude of joy that kind of springs up. Rather than looking at things negatively or looking at things in, in a terrible light all the time, we look and expect God to work. And, and when we see where God is working, we have this attitude of joy. That's what Paul's doing here. He's so happy. He's rejoicing in the people. And the reason he's doing that is because not only was he praying for them, even though they were thousands of miles apart, they were praying for him. Paul found confidence in the fact that they were praying for him, even though this is probably 10, 12 years later. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Notice the confidence of Paul. He says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul was absolutely confident that the fact that even though he was in a jail in Rome, surrounded by all of these people, he was confident because they were praying and through the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit, this is actually going to turn out for something that is good. Great confidence. He was persuaded there were people around him that were praying for him, which is a great reminder for us. We have the incredible privilege of entering into 
intimate communication with the Lord on behalf of other people. And let's not forget that book of Ephesians says this in the context of, of uh, spiritual warfare, in the context that we are in a spiritual battle, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, notice what it says. It says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, be watchful. Why? Always keep on praying for all of the saints. In the context of spiritual warfare, Paul is inviting you and I to pray for our friends and family members that they would be able to grow in their faith, grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Does, does prayer grip your heart in such a way that you know that it's going to change circumstances in somebody's life? See, sometimes I think that we don't engage in prayer in that way because we just think, well, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. And I don't necessarily need to pray. I'm just going to let God do what he wants to do. And I'm so you all know that we have a friend by the name of Gary Furch who passed away uh, this past year. And, and I was looking through some my files, and I actually came upon a letter from him. And I just want to read part of the letter. And I want you to listen to his voice, if you will, standing up here. Here's the email. It says, the Lord is at work. We have felt power in our walk as we travel the road to Bolivia. I should say winged ride to Bolivia. It started with our departure. As we left the house for the airport, Donna noticed two packages on our doorstep that must have been left by UPS. Turning around, we found the packages contained two more parts for the mission plane, O-rings and identification lights. So we stowed these away in our carry-ons and off we went. They must have arrived as we were packing the car. Arriving at the airport, we found American Airlines had given us an automatic upgrade to first class for the first leg of, from St. Louis to Miami. And listen to why he said this was good. This was fantastic, and it's allowed us to take two 50-pound pieces of checked luggage each at no charge. We had carry-ons that had a total of six pieces with us. He was joyful because they were able to take more parts, if you will, more articles for the people of Bolivia. We arrived at Miami and caught the red-eye flight to Santa Cruz, and they placed us in the front row of the main cabin. And we had one of the most pleasant rides to Bolivia. It seems harder every trip I go, but this time we rested well and enjoyed the high altitude of 13,000 feet when we landed in La Paz. So your prayer definitely was affecting us, and even more importantly, things. Landing in Santa Cruz, I found our suitcases while Donna renewed our, vision, our, our visas. The luggage looked really big. There seemed a lot of them for just the two of us, so it was kind of intimidating. I prayed and simply said, thank you, Lord, for everyone who is praying for us. I just leave whatever happens up to you. I figured that whatever happens now is what he allows, and I would abide by that, whatever it was. Donna came up to me, and we pushed our cart several big suitcases up to customs. The customs official pressed a red light for me and a green one for Donna. Well, Lord, whatever you want. They asked me for... Uh, they asked me to open my biggest baby blue suitcase. Actually, this is Mary's Whopper, which I did. And there was a fluffy pillow that burst out. This seemed to please the official who fished around a little without pulling anything out. And then she said, you go on. Wow, was ever a happy camper. Thank you for praying. As always, it's working tremendous power. Do you believe that? Here, our friend Gary is emailing a testimony to people 
who he had asked to pray for, both he and Donna asked to pray for before they went to Bolivia, so that not only were they able to get there, but all of the articles, all the things they were taking for airplanes, all of that stuff would get in. And, and, and here's Gary just simply saying, thank you for praying. Listen, I, I say thank you for praying for the people of Hope Church. Thank you for your faithfulness. I know that we send out missionary letters. I know that there's other ways of communicating with you through a prayer line. I thank you for your faithful prayers for the people of Hope Church because they do make a difference. They will and they do make a difference. And I don't know where you're at in the grand scheme of life. I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I'm not here to beat you up. What I want to do is I want you to have confidence. I want you to be encouraged that when you pray, when you seek the face of the Lord, when you truly seek Him on behalf of other people, ministries, all of them, God sees, hears, and responds. Maybe not in the exact same way that we would want Him to, but He will respond. And that's the confidence that Paul had. I have confidence that I'm praying for you, I have confidence you're for me, and I know that whatever happens in my life, through the Spirit of God, through the prayers of faithful people, this is going to work. Second aspect of his confidence is this in verse 5. He was part of a partnering community. Look at verse 5 again. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, what a great reminder of the emotion of prayer that we can pray with joy. Verse 5 says, Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Listen, Paul was grateful for the community of faith who he was a, a part of some 10, 12, 14 years before he had written this. Partnership has the idea of this. There's, there's life experiences that we're going to go through. There's good times and there's bad times. We're going to disagree and we're not, and, and sometimes we're going we're to agree with. We're going to have fun times together. We're going to have hard times together. We're going to work all of these things out. Why? Because, because we are a community of faith. We look to the, to the nature and the character of who Jesus is, that because of our ultimate faith and trust in Jesus, we are part of the body of Christ. And, and so there's this wonderful idea of friendship. The Bible calls it koinonia, fellowship. And, and it's deep. It means that you know my life and I know your life. It means that we're praying for people on an intimate level. We're helping each other. There was a, a philosopher by the name of Aristotle, which no doubt this would have been common knowledge on the idea of friendship, what it looked like for the Greek philosophers. And this is what Aristotle said. Friends have one soul between them. Friends' goods are common property. Friendship is equality. Now, this is from a philosopher. All friendship involves koinonia. And my point of showing you this is, if that is true on a human level, how much more on a spiritual level for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe how Jesus went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice. There's this idea that we are partners together in life and we care for each other. But there's also another aspect of this partnership. And Paul calls it the gospel. When Lydia, this unnamed servant woman, if you will, and the jailer, when they embrace Paul's message about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were radically changed. They were entirely changed. What's interesting is this. When you go back and look at the first one or two verses in this letter, he talks about overseers and deacons. So from Lydia and this unnamed uh, uh, woman and the jailer, somehow, somewhere, over a period of 10, 12, 14, 15 years, this church has been a Sabbath, so much so that now they have a leadership core of overseers and deacons, all from the ministry of these lives changed in Lydia. 
a servant girl and the jailer. Lives were being transformed in such a way that they could see a difference in them. And so even when Paul, when he's writing this, he's in a, he's in a prison in Rome, right? He's in a prison in Rome, and he's thinking back to, to the times with these people. And as he writes these words, he knows that they are partners. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul is giving them an update of his life in Rome, and this is what he writes. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's happened to him? He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Why would Paul write that? Why would he write that? Why would he give them an update of his circumstances? Because I think what he wants to do, he wants them to have confidence. I think he wants to have the courage and boldness in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. He says, I want you to know what's happened. I've been thrown in prison. I'm chained. But actually what's happening is even though I'm chained, I'm telling the palace guard about Jesus. I'm telling everyone around me about Jesus. And even the leaders are now hearing about Jesus. Even though I am in this place of, of suffering. And what Paul is reminding them is this, that, that there's a partnership in the gospel. It's a partnership. Let me ask you something. Are you encouraged when you see other people stand for Christ, when you see their boldness? Man, I sure am. I read this letter from Gary, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged. You know, years ago, I read the book Through Gates of Splendor because I wanted to learn about Jim Elliott. I wanted to learn about their faith. I wanted to learn why these guys would go and give themselves away in a foreign land for the cause of Christ. People. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. What Paul is doing is there's a partnership going on. There's a fellowship, and it's all based upon the gospel, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So what Paul is saying, we're, we're partners in life together. We're partners in the gospel together, but we're also partnership in the sharing of our resources. Listen, we cannot do this. We cannot do this without faithful people. We cannot do this without people who, we cannot do this without the resources that you, there is no way that we, that we cannot send mission. There's no way that we can, we cannot have ministry without your faith, without your time, talent, and treasure. And Paul knew that. He knew that we are a sharing community. Notice what he writes in Philippians chapter 4. Most people believe that what Paul actually was doing, one of the things that he wanted to do in this letter, is he wanted to thank the people at Philippi for their continuing financial support of him. So that's what he's doing. So look at what he writes in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Paul's confidence stemmed from the fact that he knew that from the very beginning of his ministry, this church financially supported him as he went out from city to city, town to town. Because they knew together they were a sharing community. They were a partnering community. Your resources, your time, your talent, your treasure... All of those wonderful aspects of what it means to be a Christ follower, God uses them, and you should have confidence. Confidence. As a matter of fact, the church here in Philippi, they became such a testimony that Paul would write about them to another church in 2 Corinthians. Listen to how Paul describes the people at Philippi and what they had done. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says this. 
And now, brothers, he's writing to a church at Corinth. He's writing to another city, to another church. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Notice what it says. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Paul is, is writing to another church, people at Corinth, and he's writing to them about the overwhelming generosity of the people at Philippi. And Paul knew that he was going to continue on in ministry, that it would continue to be fruitful in ministry because of the faithfulness of the people at Philippi. So you see where Paul's confidence is coming from? He's saying, we're, we're a praying community over here. We're a partnering community. We're partnering and sharing our resources, the gospel. We're a partner in sharing our, our resources of, of, of financial resources together with one another. But there's also another partnership, and this is the difficult part of our faith, and it's a partnership in sharing. Paul knew and understand that we were people, we are people who suffer. And when we suffer, when we're part of family of faith, we have the privilege of coming alongside of other people with the resources and life and help to help and encourage them in the midst of difficulties and challenges. Notice what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1. It says this about those suffering for their faith. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I have. You see what Paul's doing? Here it is, 10, 12, 15. Paul's looking back at it. He says, listen, I know you're suffering. I suffered for the gospel. You saw that when I initially came there. You saw what happened in my life. You know that I'm in prison now. I'm in Roman prison. And now I know that some of you are suffering. You know, some of you maybe you've been thrown in prison. Maybe you've lost your job because of your faith. You know, when you, when you are bold, when we're partners in the gospel, when you're bold and you make a stand for the cause of Christ, yeah, it is difficult. And you could and may lose your job. That's what the Bible says, that we suffer. And what Paul would say is, listen, in the midst of all that, we're partners. We're partners in suffering. Why? Because when I know that you're suffering, I'm going to... And when I know that you're suffering, hopefully what we can do is we can come alongside and help each other because that's the way that God wants to work in the body of Christ and the family. Look again at verse 6. He says this, Paul's confidence comes from his understanding that God was at work in their lives. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See Paul's heart? He gives thanks. He is looking back and reflecting. He's confident. He's persuaded. That even though he hasn't been around the church for a long time, he's confident that God is going to work in and through because of who he is. Because of the, the fact that they've gathered together to pray together. They've gathered together to partner together. And not just in life, not just with the gospel, but they've partnered together in the midst of suffering. And this is what I think it means for us. Think about verse 6 in the context of our community. I mean, that sometimes we differ in life. When you look at Philippians chapter 4, Euodia and Sintiki, however you say her name, they're a little bit wanky with each other. And what Paul is doing is Paul is going to affirm to them, say, listen, I want them to agree together in the Lord. And what it means is we don't always get along. We have differences, maybe doctoral differences, or we have differences. We vary in a lot of different ways. But what I think verse 6 gives me confidence is this. I know and have confidence that God is working in your life. And hopefully you have confidence that God is working in my life as I seek the face of the Lord, as I look to him, as I'm in his word, as I pray for him. I hope that you have that confidence around the people, the families, the people around you. You know, I'm not the Holy Spirit of God. 
It's not my role. It's not my responsibility to tell people how to live. It's my role. It's my responsibility to what? To proclaim the Word of God. It's your responsibility to read, listen, and discern the Word of God. We're all in this together. There's a partnership. And when I get off track and I get wanky, hopefully somebody, our elders, come along and says, by the way, you may need to change here, or you may need to change something here. That's speaking the truth in the context of love. But I think what verse 6 is reminding us is this, that God is working in and through us, and that God wants to work in through you individually, through your families, through our church. I understand the difficulties and challenges we're in. We get it. We're trying to respond, no doubt. But I want us to know and respond to verse 6, that God will work. He will carry it on to com- what we need to do is to be faithful and, who and put our faith and trust ultimately in I don't want to be responsible for that. What I want to do is I want us to be responsible for living for Christ in the best way that we can. Looking at other people, having confidence that what God is doing is God is working. And that's why we pray. That's why we pray. We pray for each other. That's why we partner together. We need the partnership that we have that we enjoy with one another. And look at the flags. You know, talk about a partnering. Look at the flags. These are representative countries that are missionaries all over. The world. We, we need that partnership. They need that partnership with you. We need that partnership with them. So your prayers, your financial resources are going together. And I hope that they have confidence in us, our missionaries have confidence in us, that we are going to continue to do that. So Paul's confidence came from the fact that they were praying together. Paul's confidence came from the fact that they were partnering together. And last thing is this, Paul's confidence came from the fact they were passionate toward each other. Look at verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing is he's just simply sharing his heart that he longs with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he calls on God as his witness. Test my heart. You know, I long for you. I continue to pray for you. I thank you for the partnership. Enjoy. I know that God is working in and for his honor and for his glory. And we need that. What a great privilege that you and I have to be a part, hopefully, of a community where people know us. They know what's going on in our lives, and we have the opportunity to share our life with one another. You know, there was a verse that I memorized many, many years ago. It's a Paul wrote to, first, uh, to the people at Thessalonica, and it says this. Um, it's one of the first uh, verses I memorized. It says, Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. So Paul had this, this longing, this heartfelt for the people of Thessalonica. And as he ministered to them, and as he served among them, not only did he give them the message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he imparted his own life to them by serving them, by helping them, by coming alongside of them and being an example of them. They saw his life in the midst of ministry, in the, uh, in the, midst, in the context of difficulty. So I, I want to remind you that as we head into the, the holiday seasons, let's be confident. You know, you are a praying community. We are a partnering community. You are a passionate community. Let's be confident that God is working the lives of our I hope that you continue to look to the Lord for who he is and what he's done. For God is the one that will do that. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And Father, I thank you for the people of Hope Church. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their prayers. I thank you for their time and their talent and their treasure and the way that they serve. I thank you for the joy that they have. And Father, we simply come to you this morning confident of who you are, confident in your word, 
and that you desire to use us as individuals. Father, we have no idea when we leave here the people that you're going to bring into our lives, maybe in our family, maybe in our job, maybe some other place. Father, we ask and invite you to use our church in the midst of a difficult and challenging time to be a light in the midst of darkness. Father, let us have this confidence that the Apostle Paul. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.